Well, good morning, everyone. Excuse my tardiness. I didn't realize the countdown reached zero, and I needed a drink of water. It's that time of year where there's cold season going on, and I got one myself, so if you hear coughing, just ignore it. Pretend it was someone next to you and not the person up here speaking. Well, like many of you, I have the uh, evening tradition, the evening ritual as a parent of putting my children to bed, at least on most nights if I'm home. Uh, My wife, Melissa, and I trade off kind of who does what child, and we do the typical routine, of course, getting children ready for bed, and then the bedtime story, right? One of the things that I love doing with kids, uh, whether it's bedtime or not, is reading them stories because I like the stories too, and usually they hold still, and so that's a, a nice thing to do. And the interesting thing now is that as an adult, as a parent, I'm actually reading stories to my kids that I remember having read to me by my mom uh, growing up. And one of my son's favorite characters is Curious George, and he's actually reading the exact books that I got when I was about five or six years old, and so now they're in our home, and I'm reading them to, to my son. And just last month was his birthday, and so my wife and I got him a collection. It's a nice hardbound copy, and it's the original Adventures of Curious George. I'm sure some of you have seen this collection. It's the first seven stories that were written when this character and this franchise took off. And I was under the assumption that Curious George was kind of around in in the 70s or the 80s, because that's where my books are dated from. The first stories were written in the 1940s. Uh, up to the 50s and 60s. And so I'm, I found as I'm now reading these stories, the original stories to my son Hudson, I, I'm surprised by some of the content. And I'm actually starting to censor some of the things that I'm reading to him. For example, um, did you know that Curious George enjoys a smoke from a pipe? Yeah, after a good meal and a good pipe, George felt very tired. And I think to myself, well, maybe that's why some of our children don't feel tired for nap time. They're getting a nice meal, they're getting a a bedtime story read to them, but they're missing out on the pipe. And so, you know, this is just, this one's illustrated, it's a little bit more challenging, but it's quite easy. My son's four, he can't read, so I can skip over some some things, I can censor other things. Quite often, it's happened in a few books, George, because of his curiosity, gets himself into a whole bunch of trouble, and in one instance, at least, he says that he's so remorseful, he's so sad that he wished he were dead. And that's another one that I choose to skip over a little bit. I just say, you know, he was, he was quite sad. He was quite remorseful for what happened. He felt terrible about it. But it's interesting. It's not just Curious George. There's a number of other books that I think that's not a word I want to introduce my child to. Or I don't have to explain what's going on here. And so I skip over it or I edit it or I, I use a synonym that's a little less harsh. And I find that uh, I don't just do this with other books. I actually do it sometimes with the children's Bible that I will read to my son. Now, children's Bibles, for the most part, are rather tame, right? We're not going through all the most violent and strange stories that we find throughout the Bible. Those get skipped over, or they get kind of prepared into this nice poetic story or poem that doesn't give many details about what happens. But even still, there's sometimes a word that comes up, or there's context, and I think to myself, I don't know if I, if I want to give the details about how King David chopped off Goliath's head after he killed him. I don't know if I want to go into the details where Pharaoh wanted the baby boys killed in Egypt. I'll just say that he wanted them hurt. He didn't like them. That wasn't going according to his plan as a 
tyrant and slave owner. Uh, and so it's interesting as, as I think through these stories that now I'm, I'm purposely editing for my kids, and then I think, well, there's going to come a time a few years down the road when they're seven or eight, and now the children's story is a, a little bit longer. It's a little bit more specific to what we read in the Bibles that come from the original documents. And so there's going to be questions asked. And then what about when, when children, whether you're an aunt or an uncle, or you do some babysitting, or you're a parent or a grandparent, what about when these kids become 12, 14, 16, 17, and they're reading the same Bibles that you and I are reading? I'm guessing they're going to start asking some questions. They're probably going to ask some questions that you ask as well, but we don't always like to think about the answers, or we don't carry them out to their end point. Will they not ask some of the same questions that you and I ask? Questions that we're asking right now in our series called, Why God? Will they not wonder why words like anger, wrath, kill, and destroy are not just words that appear every once in a while in stories, but these are actually major themes in a lot of the stories that we read? Will they not read the stories in Genesis and wonder why God sends down burning fire on Sodom and Gomorrah? Will they not wonder why the Israelites are saved out of Egypt, but the Egyptians are drowned in the river? Or why God kicks off the Canaanites and and decides that they should be destroyed, and then he kind of just freely gives that gift to the Israelites? Will they not wonder why God gives the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, and then he later tells Joshua to kill everything, men and women, animals, destroy the cities and the land? Well, they not wonder why Jesus, the human form, the representation, God in human flesh, why Jesus says when you encounter your enemies or when you're involved in conflict to turn the other cheek, when his father, God, kills a man for mishandling the Ark of the Covenant. Will the children of any generation not ask the same questions that any of us asks when we read the pages of the Bible? And to think that some of us have thought that the toughest question a child could ask is how babies are made. Well, these are far more difficult questions than this. So I raise these questions because as a reader of the Bible, these questions come to my mind. And I imagine they come to your mind when you read the Bible as well. Questions that were raised during our last series as we read through the book of Hosea are now starting to reappear as we read the book of Lamentations. As we hear the poet in the book of Lamentations cry out during a time of unthinkable sorrow. And while Lamentations is probably best known as the book that gives us to the lyrics of the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness, there are other words that are far less comforting that come from this book. Such as in chapter 2, when God is called an enemy. Now, I have yet to read, a, or read song lyrics or actually sing a song that describes God as an angry warrior who swallows me up like his helpless enemy. And to be truthful, I don't ever want to sing that song. So if you are a songwriter, maybe you can write that song, but I probably won't be the one most excited to sing about it. But it's there. It's there one chapter earlier before the lyrics to Great is Thy Faithfulness. Listen and turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to Lamentations chapter 2. I always find Lamentations a tough book of the Bible to find. It's right after the book of Jeremiah, which is a fairly long one, pretty much right in the middle of the Bible. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds 
of the daughter of Judah. He has brought her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. In fierce anger, he has cut off every horn of Israel. He has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. He has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. Like an enemy, he has strung his bow. His right hand is ready. Like a foe, he has slain all who were pleasing to his eye. He has poured out his wrath like fire on the tent of the daughter of Zion. The Lord is like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. Now these are the words, these are the images that skeptics love to point to. Skeptics, atheists, agnostics, those who would like to discredit this idea of some sort of God out there who either exists or a God who is good. They love to to grab on language here and stories of evil and violence and say, well, how in the world could this God that some people claim exists, even if he does exist, why would you want him to be there? Why would you want to serve him? Why would you delude yourself into any of these thoughts? Several years ago, I read a book by a well-known atheist writer. He's a best-selling author. His name's Richard Dawkins. I'm guessing many of you have heard his name, maybe read some of his books. This book is called The God Delusion. I think it was written in 2006. And he writes one of, let's very well quoted in a number of other books, but one of the most shockingly blunt statements in his description of God that I've ever heard. And I would quote all of it, but I'm not going to. And it's not because I feel like it's not appropriate in a church setting, but mainly because the descriptions that he say are so academic, I can't even pronounce half of them. But you'll get the idea as you hear what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character and all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, capriciously malevolent bully. Those of us schooled from infancy in his ways can become desensitized to their horror. Well, that's rather blunt, isn't it? Now, one of the primary reasons that Richard Dawkins promotes his claim that our world would be better off without religion is because of this understanding that he has of who God is. Based on history as he understands it, based on the Bible as he reads it. And so he says, you know what? Our world will be better off without religion. He actually claims that if religion were eradicated, if it was done away with, no one had any thoughts of any sort of God, and all the different world religions were gone, the world would be far less violent. It would be a better place for each of us to live. And so he points to the heroic, or excuse me, the horrific uh, accounts of, of violence that we've seen during our lifetime, and he points all the way back throughout history, back to the ancient writings of the Bible. And he asks, how can God possibly good if people are constantly picking up weapons, instigating fighting, and then pointing back to God as the mastermind for all of this stuff that they have done in order to justify it? Now, in my mind, it's really not too difficult to discredit the arguments that Dawkins makes, but trapped inside his ideas is a question that's very valid, 
Question valid enough for us to consider this morning. And the question is this, what do we do with all of the violence that's intertwined throughout the Old Testament writings? What do we do with all of this violence that we read about that we find in the Old Testament? Now, as I tried to respond to this question, I should probably say that today's message is not going to feel like some other messages that you'll hear at Jericho Ridge. It's probably not going to feel like an inspiring sermon. Hopefully it does. But it's probably going to sound a little bit more like an academic lecture. And so I, I had thought that if I had a corduroy jacket that had elbow patches on it, I could wear it, but I don't have one. My son has one, but it's a, a bit too small on me. Uh, but just to give you an idea, this is probably going to sound and feel a little bit different. And I think there's a place for both. There's a, there's a place for, for digging into the scriptures and asking a tough theological question that kind of looks more like a classroom setting. And there's a time for, for looking uh, in, into a, a text and, and finding how God is speaking through it and in, inspiring action through that context as well. But I hope that, that what I go through today will help each of us grapple through this question. And I'm actually anticipating that this will be the first part of two parts that I'll, I'll come back again next week and we'll kind of pick up where we left off this week and hopefully go through some more questions that pop up as this conversation continues. I want to begin, though, by giving credit uh, to an author by the name of Christopher Wright. Uh, several years ago, I read one of his books And this past week, I picked up a newer one. It's called The God I Don't Understand, which is quite fascinating in that he honestly goes through a number of questions that he has, uh, theological questions, and just says, how are we to make sense of this? How are we supposed to understand evil and suffering? How do we understand the cross? How do we understand what happened to the Canaanites? And so he goes through a, a number of frameworks for how we pose these questions and then how we try to make sense of it. And we should say that this is not something that will completely satisfy our questions, but hopefully it helps us gain a little bit of a context for what happened and how we can come to grips with it. And so he says that as we read the Old Testament and as we listen to these violent stories and as we hear something from Lamentations where, where you have an individual, an Israelite, feel like God is the enemy to him, there's a number of ways that we can construct that into our mind, that we can make sense to it. And so he says there's two that are, that are very popular. There's many different ways that, that we could try to, to make sense of that. But he says uh, some of the most popular options are one of these two. We either consider the violence to be an Old Testament problem that's then corrected by the New Testament, or secondly, we decide that the Israelites must have misheard God when they went to war. And so we'll start with this first one, because this is, this is a, an opinion that I hear many times within the context of the church. Well, really what's happening is we have two very different time periods. And in fact, we kind of have two very different gods. We've got the Old Testament God, who seems to be very vindictive, and he, he's jealous, and he's violent, and he gives special treatment to this group of people called the Israelites, and he kind of does whatever he wants to do in that part of the Bible. But then we get into the New Testament, and Jesus comes and Jesus teaches us that actually, no, God's not really like that, and, and he's much more peaceful, and he's much more loving. And so we can just kind of separate these two Testaments and focus on the New Testament because we're saved through the blood of Jesus and what he's done, and that's kind of a way we can make sense of all of this. So this kind of means one of two things. Either the Israelites were poorly represented by the ancient Israelites, maybe the stories they had read, they had written, weren't quite all that accurate about how God behaved, or God went through a radical personality change 
during the 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he got a whole lot nicer. That's kind of the, 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 the end of the road there if we're looking at this theory. So, of course, the assumption is that the Old Testament's filled with stories of an angry God who hovers over the earth, and he's basically got fire and brimstone ready. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus says, no, God's actually much nicer than this. And through the work of Jesus, our sins are pardoned, we're forgiven, and then we're commanded to live in the same way and extend this grace towards other. Well, the problem is if we examine the Bible carefully, we find out that this theory doesn't work out too well. So we're going to go through a, a few examples here. So first of all, we find that the Old Testament, while it does have a number of stories that are filled with violence and evil and a whole bunch of questionable things, we find out that the Old Testament's also filled with descriptions of God's love and compassion. There's a great deal of this, sometimes embedded in these same stories of judgment. So we, we think about, for an example, Abraham. Abraham, who had a conversation with God before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And we hear that Abraham and later Jonah, when, when it comes into the context of Nineveh, they actually have conversations about how God is to act out his justice. And so Abraham barters with God to the point of having God agree that he wouldn't destroy an entire city if just 10 people were righteous within it. And through the end of that story, we find out there weren't even 10 people who were righteous within it. And then we've got Jonah. We did a series on Jonah a couple of years ago. And one of the interesting things we find about it is that Jonah is very, very angry that God would pardon the Ninevites. Jonah was not a big fan of the Ninevites. They were incredibly wicked. And yet when they were given an extended amount of time to repent, they did repent, and God showed his compassion. And Jonah was mad at God. He actually says, I knew it. I knew you were a gracious God, compassionate God, and that you wouldn't destroy them. And so he's actually angered by this. We can read through different psalms and different prophets that speak about God's everlasting love and his unfailing kindness. So to simply say the Old Testament's filled with violence really does not give credit to the fact that there's many, many instances of God's love and mercy and compassion as well. Of course, we can also look at the New Testament and say the opposite. Many of us think, well, the New Testament is where we find all about Jesus and his love and forgiveness and compassion, and and so God must have changed or there was a misrepresentation in the past. But this isn't all that we read in the New Testament. Jesus speaks more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. Judgment is always warned against in the New Testament. Jesus describes hell as anything but pleasant. There's eternal fire, there's darkness, there's terrible remorse. And even more convincing within the New Testament is we don't find any part of it where Jesus or or someone else who's speaking or writing, they don't go back to the Old Testament and they don't try to correct some of these stories. They don't say, "Um, actually, your forefathers got it wrong when when they were listening to God. They actually misheard him, and they went out, and, and that was an unjust war that they settled. We don't hear that at all. They don't condemn the past acts of violence in the Old Testament. In fact, some of the most violent stories are then repeated and served as an illustration for how people should live. So we need to be careful of intentionally or unintentionally pitting the Old Testament against the New Testament, and we'd be wise to remember that Jesus himself explains that he did not come to abolish the law, he came to usher in its fulfillment. 
So that's kind of the first theory, this, this thought of, well, you know, these are two different testaments and we can just kind of throw out the bad stuff with the Old Testament and focus on the New Testament. The second idea that, that is easy to, uh, to come to is that the Israelites mistakenly interpreted God's commandments. So in this theory, we just steer around the problem of violence by taking God out of the equation. We just say, well, um, the Israelites, they had good intentions, but they really imagined some of this stuff up. They thought that they heard from God. They thought that they were uh, doing what was right. But just like religious groups have done throughout history and like still what happens now, they basically just imagined it themselves and they justified it through their own self-interest. And so they went to war and they wiped people out and they used God language, but God basically didn't tell them to do any of that at all. And so because God didn't do that, the Israelites, they really did act immorally. They did horrendously violent and terrible things. Now, this is partly true in a sense, because there are times when the Israelites misinterpret God's commands. There's several stories where we find out that, that uh, a king or a leader or a group of people, they decide to go out and, and start a war, or they take some other action, and we find out that they acted wrongfully. And the reason why we know they acted wrongfully is because we find out about it in the Bible later on. We find out the Lord speaking to a prophet or someone else and said, they did not listen to me. That's not what I said. And that's why they were defeated in battle. Or this is now the punishment that I'm going to serve to you. And so there's actually, we're kind of, the reason why we know they did things wrong is because we're told they did things wrong, which makes us think that we'd be told every single time they did something wrong, every time God was displeased over their actions. So in a way, this theory is correct, depending on what story we want to look at. If we want to look at different instances, we could say, well, yeah, there we go. In this instance, they acted incorrectly and violently, and it was unjust, and, and then God made retribution over that. To give you an example, there's a story of a man named Jehu who is appointed king of Israel by Elisha. And he's commissioned to destroy the house of Ahab and Jezebel because they were incredibly wicked. They did a number of unjust and wicked things. And so Ahab, he is successful in his mission, but he also chooses to slaughter all the priests of Baal, which when you think within the context doesn't sound like a terrible thing. These were, this was a false god. These were priests who were leading people astray. And so he rounds them all up deceptfully and he slaughters all of them. Well, we find out later in the book of Hosea that God announces that the house of Jehu will be punished because of its violence, because he took it on his own measure and decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and inflict a little bit more violence here. And so God later on says, no, that was incredibly wrong. That was unjust. And so I'm going to pay the penalty out for your household accordingly. So we see that the theory does work in some instances, but not in every story of violence, especially in the conquest of the Canaanites. And this is where we're going to uh, settle a little bit more of our conversation now because there's no part of the Bible that explains the killing of the Canaanites as a massive Israelite mistake. We just don't read about it. Instead, we find the opposite. We find that the refusal of the first generation of Israelites as well as the failure of future generations of Israelites both are condemned as not carrying out obedience to God's will. So the fact that these people groups did not kill the, the, the Canaanites, that was in fact sin. That was disobedience to God. So the Israelites sinned when they did not kill the Canaanites, which sounds a little bit shocking and uncomfortable, doesn't it? 
So we really can't blame Moses, and we can't blame Joshua for commanding Israel to destroy the Canaanites, because the rest of the Bible never hints that this was wrong. The rest of the Bible never says, well, Moses um, was incorrect in telling them that this is what they should do, and Joshua was wrong when he carried out this plan. Instead, the conquest is anticipated, and it's remembered as a series of wars and actions that accomplish God's will. God was pleased by the Canaanites being killed off. So are there some acts of violence in the Bible that were not sanctioned by God? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what about the killing of the Canaanites? From everything we read, there's no such backtrack here. And while the question of how it could be just for the Canaanites to be killed by the Israelites is a very different question than we began with, looking at this question is actually going to bring us back to the book of Lamentations and the curious words of God acting like an enemy to Israel. So I'm going to mention Christopher Wright's name, just so you don't think that I've figured out all this stuff by myself this past week, because he wrote a brilliant chapter a number of years ago called, What About the Canaanites? And he addresses this topic head on. And this summary is not a list of solutions. It may help a little bit. It's probably not going to make everyone feel better about what happened in the past. But it should help with context. It should give us a little bit of perspective to give us fuller context for these stories and words that we often read in isolation. And I should also say that this is not about violence in general or about why bad things happen to good people, which is what Pastor Brad spoke on a couple of weeks ago. This is specifically about what happened with this Canaanite conquest. And to give you a little bit of context for that story, if you're unfamiliar with it, the descendants of Abraham uh, became the Israelites, named after his grandson Jacob, who was later, later renamed Israel. And at that time, God promised Abraham that his descendants, the Israelites, would inhabit this land that he was currently living in. And so as uh, Israel, they, they grew, they actually moved down to Egypt for a while, and they became enslaved by the Egyptians, and then God raised up uh, a deliverer through Moses and his mighty acts that God empowered Moses to do. They actually led, left Egypt, and they wandered around in the desert because God was waiting for them to be ready and to be obedient to enter this land to wipe out the Canaanites. And eventually they did, and that's where the Israelites grew their their nation, and developed a kingship, and then uh, the rest of the story continued from there. So in order to make sense of this, let's consider a couple of frameworks to view this question through. And the first framework is that of the Old Testament story itself, as we ask, what in the world is going on with the Canaanites? So we often forget that we're living in, in a very different era than the Canaanites lived in, that the Israelites lived in. And so we need to get back as far as we can to what Near Eastern culture looked like, which I admit is an impossibility, but it's, it's helpful at least to think about. The warfare between Israel and Canaan is not what we would now consider to be holy war. Uh, that term is, is used here and there, and we have a little bit of a concept for religious war or holy war. This is a very different situation. This isn't a violent feud between two groups of people that don't like each other because they believe different things religiously. They have different gods. uh, They think they're superior to the other, and so they battle it out on, on the battlefield. And we can't really label this as genocide either based on how we currently define that word either, as we'll see in a moment. Instead, the fighting as we read it in the Old Testament is understood as a war of Yahweh. Yahweh is the name for God. 
So every time we, we read about what's happening, the war itself is attributed to God. It's basically saying this is God's war. God is, uh, he's declared war and he's carrying out war and punishment against the Canaanites. And so because of that, he not just sanctions the war, he actually does the fighting in a way himself. He declares that he will be successful, that the Canaanites will be rid of. And this happens even when Israel's greatly outnumbered. And in some cases, it happens even when Israel doesn't even have to lift up a hand to fight themselves. And so when God sanctions a war, it came with this understanding and this instruction that complete destruction should happen. Humans, animals, materials, so that everyone and everything was dedicated or devoted to God himself. And there's a Hebrew word for it. The word is harem. And there's actually a number of specific rules and understandings about what harem is, and it it depends on the battle and the situation. But the general concept is, because this is God's war, he wants everything that is being judged here, everything being punished, to be totally destroyed and totally devoted to him. Ancient warfare practices, the understanding was when you defeat an enemy, well, there's treasure. There's, there's spoils, there's booty. And so then you, you take whatever you want, you take the animals, you take the money, you take the children, whatever, and, and that goes to the successful army. God's idea here was no. This wasn't anything that was to benefit Israel at all. This was something that was to satisfy God's justice, as we'll see here in a moment. And so this is why we have stories of complete annihilation. Other times we find out God instructs, you know what, you can keep the cattle, you can take this, and you can use this. Or instead of these people being completely killed, that they're going to be your prisoners, or they're going to be spared, and so have mercy on these individuals. And this sounds pretty horrific, right? I mean, this is the stuff that Richard Dawkins talks about and say, how can a God be just when women or children are being killed in these sorts of situations? And as terrible as it sounds, harem was not a unique practices of Israel. This wasn't like God dreamed up this idea just himself. Uh, this is, there's actual textual evidence from other nations stating that they committed the same sort of acts with their enemies. Now, this doesn't justify the, fa- the act in and of itself, just that other neighboring nations, when they defeat someone, they totally wipe them out. But it does help us give a little bit more of an understanding of what's happening in the Near Eastern practices of war. And we should also note, and this is interesting as well, that there's rhetoric used in the Old Testament. There's warfare warfare rhetoric. And so uh, as you read history, I mean, all of us have have taken history courses, and we read back, and you hear some of these accounts about how one army was completely devastated by another, and then you read the other side, and they say the same thing. And you're like, wait a second, how can two be, be winning here? Well, Within that culture, and it even happens a little bit today, there's a little bit of rhetoric that happens about how successful one side was and how completely overwhelmed another one was. And so what we find here in the Bible is there's a few instances of this happening as well. Well, we'll read a story and we'll think, wow, this is, this is tough to grasp. This is tough to read to my child, that this one group of people were completely annihilated. The, the city was burnt up, women and children killed, every living thing is destroyed, and then we find out a little bit later, oh, wait, was it completely destroyed? There's a little bit of rhetoric. To give you um, an example, the book of Joshua, which really outlines all of the Canaanite conquest here, we read within that book that all of the land was captured, all of the kings, all of the people. But in the very next book, the book of Judges, most of that book is about Israel 
being very busy trying to subdue all the other inhabitants in the land. And so we realize, well, there could be a little bit of, of storytelling here that goes on that doesn't tell the entire story of how incredibly violent this was. So this doesn't entirely satisfy our questions of harem, but it might help us as we struggle through the graphic descriptions of warfare with an understanding that complete annihilation was not always the end point. And Christopher Wright explains this really well when he says, this is not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. The other thing we have to realize is that the conquest of Canaan was a limited and unique event. The Bible's filled with the history of many wars, but the conquest of Canaan was mostly confined to one generation. It was anticipated for a long time. It's remembered for thousands of years and many generations afterwards. But for the most part, the killing of the Canaanites was within a a fairly short time frame. It's seen as an act of God. It's not seen as an achievement of Israel. Or in other instances, we have Israelites celebrating what happened through the war. It's very specific here in the Bible that this is not about anything that Israel has done, and it's not about who Israel is as far as her character is concerned about. It's about what God is doing and that he is fighting for the people of Israel and that the land is then given to Israel. And so because of this, the conquest of the Canaanites is never meant to be a model for how Israel, or for how anyone else for that matter, should deal with our enemies or resolve conflict. If it was the model, then we'd have very difficult times making sense of the rest of the Bible, especially when you listen to Jesus and the Apostle Paul and and other writers talking about the command to keep peace and to love our enemies. And we're going to talk about this more next week in in the second half of this message. So the question is then, well, if all this stuff happens, if we're reading this stuff and and it's right there on the page, no matter how much annihilism was going on, but if we've got a God who's commanding a group of people to kill all these other people, how do we make sense with it? And how is this Canaanite conquest different than when they warred with other armies? Well, it has to do with justice, which is the next framework that we'll consider at this point, the framework of God's sovereign justice. The easiest way to summarize how the Bible describes the Canaanite killings is to connect their fate with God's sovereign justice and punishment. This is the motive that's consistently repeated throughout the Bible. God's justice is what prompted him to remove the Canaanites from the earth. His actions were divine punishments delivered through the Israelites. Now, this conquest is often viewed as a type of genocide. Genocide is completely wiping out an ethnic group, a nation, a group of people. And it it does involve killing a group of people within that definition, within that context. But our modern definition of genocide usually understands a few other things too. It usually includes the self-interest of the people who engage in that warfare. If we've got country A going against country B, uh, country A usually has this understanding of we have something to gain by wiping out country B. And not only that, there's usually this false sense of racial superiority. We are superior to them. They really shouldn't exist. They're a lower class than we are. And so because of this and because of our own selfish motives, we're going to take them out and take everything else out that they have there. What we find in the Bible is that the conquest is never justified based on ethnic grounds has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with um, 
with ethnicity at all. And I'm going to give a couple examples of that next week. What we read in the Bible is that the Canaanites are wiped out because of their wickedness. It has to do with their behavior. And we could read several passages in the Old Testament that describe some of the acts that they were involved in, some of the wickedness that they practiced. But what's most important here is that we realize that God's actions against them were not unfounded acts of violence, but they were actually justified acts of punishment. So for an example, in the book of Hebrews, when uh, the Canaanites are mentioned, they're described as those who were disobedient, which tells us that they had some sort of moral awareness of what they were doing. If they were disobedient to something, then they must have recognized uh, what they were being disobedient about, and they chose not to repent about it. It's also telling that if you flip back to Genesis chapter 15, when God first tells Abraham that he's going to make him into a great nation and he's going to give him land, he says that it's not going to happen immediately. And the reason why it takes a number of generations is because God tells him the sin of the Amorites, and the Amorites is another name for the Canaanites, he says the the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So this tells us in some sort of strange way that we can't completely comprehend in terms of justice, that the Canaanites at that point were not yet wicked enough to morally justify God condemning them and and wiping them out by killing them. But there would come a time, God anticipated this time, when their wickedness would get so severe and so terrible that it would reach the point of demanding a a divine response. Now, justified punishment doesn't necessarily make violence any nicer, does it? But it is very different from selfish violence or from senseless violence. When violence is used as a means of punishment, it usually changes how we look at the moral context of violence. Violence just for the sake of violence or to do something selfishly, we would say, well, morally, that's different than violence that's done as a means of punishment. And the Israelites in this story are the human agents that God uses to enact his judgment on the wicked Canaanites. In a way, they're God's tool at that time in history to carry out his judgment. But what this doesn't mean is that the Israelites were therefore righteous because the Canaanites were wicked, and that the Israelites were some sort of great people because God used them as his vessel. They don't become the good guys because the Canaanites were the bad guys. God completely overturns this idea in several instances In the Bible, but look here if you want to flip to it to Deuteronomy chapter 9. It's in verses 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verses 4 to 6. He flat out tells Israel, It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to go in and take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So if, you're, if you ever accepted this idea that the Israelites are kind of the good guys in the Bible, these are, are the people that are, are more favored and, and uh, more superior as far as their actions and all this sort of, th- sort of things are concerned, you're in for a surprise when God then turns the table on them later on in biblical history. God then begins to use other nations, just as Israel is used against Canaan. He uses other nations to inflict punishment on the Israelites. And Israel experiences the same fate as other nations did before them when they choose to turn their backs on God and act disobediently. 
So God uses the Assyrians and he uses the Babylonians to punish the Israelites, even though those nations, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, even though we find out they're very wicked themselves. And then they are judged in turn by God as well. As Wright explains, God can use one nation as a stick to punish another, but the stick he uses itself may be very well bent. So what we discover is that God does not actually give the Israelites special treatment. He warns them that if they act wickedly, as the nations before them did, he will punish them in the same way that he punished other nations before them. They'll be scattered, they'll be destroyed. And yes, God will actually appear as if he is an enemy against them, which is exactly what we hear from the poet in the second chapter of Lamentations. God is like an enemy. Why would the poet describe God as an enemy? Why is he envisioned with his hand gripping the bow? And why is he determined to pour out his wrath like fire? Well, the poet doesn't tell us precisely, but in verse 17 of chapter 2, we read that God is fulfilling what he said he would do long before. The Lord has done what he planned, which he has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has let the enemy gloat over you. God's carrying out the justice he promised to deliver if Israel fell into disobedience. And in this story, the Israelites fall into the hands of her adversaries because of their disobedience. So the question of violence in the Bible usually creates more questions than uh, we begin with. And I'm guessing that some of you are probably working through some of this material and looking at your notes and wondering, wow, this was not at all helpful. I have many more questions now than I started with. But... I'm hoping to pick up this conversation next week and to carry it out into more of the good news part of this story. So if you have questions, uh, feel free to email me. You can put them on Jericho's Twitter account. Uh, I'll do my best either to respond to your questions throughout the week as I read someone far wiser than myself to find out what the answer is or to work them into next week's message as well. But the framework I want to pick up next week is the most practical one, the most hopeful one. And it's the third framework of understanding how God's justice works together with his plan for salvation. If this is God's just um, punishment of these people, how in the world does this carry about salvation? Aren't there other means that he could use for this to happen? And that's the good news part of this story, and that's great because all of us need good news. And I don't know the measuring rod that God uses to calculate how much longer he'll wait in his mercy and then when it becomes time for him to take action and carry out justice, I simply know that the stories in the Bible say that it's God's job to act as the judge, both in the present time of the stories we read about and in the future time to come. God's opposed to wickedness no matter who commits it. You could be a Canaanite, an Israelite, a Pharisee, or a Canadian. It doesn't matter. The bad news is that none of us can justify ourselves before God. The good news is that none of us have to. None of us us have to justify ourselves before God because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This means instead of being an enemy of God, you can become one of his adopted children. And if you've never heard the good news of this story before, if maybe you've heard the words but you haven't experienced it yourself, uh, we'd love to talk with you today 
And so we're going to have a, a few people available to pray, and you can ask them questions. You can ask for them to pray with you. And as we close our time of worship this morning, we're going to sing one final song. And the lyrics of this song, strangely enough, come from the book of Joshua. They come uh, from the context of what we've been talking about, about the Canaanites um, being at war with the Israelites, as God has told the Israelites to do. And it comes with this understanding of what is going on. And Lord addresses the people of Israel and he reminds them what's happened and how they've gotten to this point and how they're entering this land now. And he says to Israel that they have not defeated the armies, the Lord gave them into their hands. And so as the Israelites look at this land that's been given to them, there's fields and there's vineyards and there's cities there and they haven't planted anything, they haven't built anything, they're asked who they will serve. They've got a choice. And Joshua, through the word of the Lord, he tells them, well, you can choose to serve the gods that you grew up with. You can choose to serve the gods of the surrounding nations. Or you can choose to serve the God of justice, the God of of mercy, and the God of compassion. But choose you today who you will serve. Let's pray. Lord, it's not easy to grapple with the tough questions that your word presents us with, but I'm thankful, Lord, that you are not fearful of these questions. I'm thankful, Lord, for your character, which for us is tough to balance between your vengeance, your wrath, and your justice, and your compassion, your mercy, your grace, and your love. But I pray, God, that your words of truth would hold true to us and that we would be truthful to you about how we feel, what we think, and that we would have the courage enough to search your word and to find out your truth. And so, God, as we sing today, I pray, God, that you would inspire us, that your spirit would minister to us, that we would choose to serve you in word and deed, all for your glory, Lord. Amen.